Revelation in chapter 5 then this morning, please. Revelation in chapter 5. Reading together from the verse 1. And the Word of God says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints." And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and a number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. Ending our reading there at the verse 14. As we come to this message this morning, our minds are drawn once more to the theme of heaven. We come to the last message in this series in You may say, well, that was a short series. Well, it was intended to be so because any longer, I believe, would enter into the realm of speculation. And that was never the desire nor the intention as we came to consider the theme of heaven nor indeed the theme of hell in our evening services. Rather, it was, of course, to be informative and to stick closely, as closely as we could to the Word of God itself. And so we bring both of these uh, series to a conclusion today, and as we do so, I want to ask the question as we enter into this message this morning, and the question I pose is simply this, what is it about heaven that you look forward to the most? What is it about heaven that you look forward to the most? 
You know, when it comes to questions such as I have posed this morning, we, of course, ask very similar questions, especially when it comes to travel in this life. Perhaps it's the anticipation of a week's holiday in a place that we have never been before. Or perhaps it's when friends and loved ones are about to head away backpacking or perhaps traveling around in a camper van and we know that they're going to a new part of the world and lying before them is weeks of discovery as they seek to take in and behold all that those locations have to offer. But so whatever the case may be, we've all heard the question, no doubt, posed, well, what are you looking forward to the most or indeed What are you looking forward to seeing? It's of no surprise, really, that we come to it like this. For the most part, we as humans respond best to visual stimulus. Very often, demonstration or the use of graphics are employed whenever it comes to teaching so that a concept can be grasped or information can be understood and better understood. So when it comes to inquiring about a holiday or speaking one with another about an anticipated trip, I have yet to hear, what are you looking forward to smelling? I've yet to hear, what are you looking forward to touching? I have yet to hear, what are you looking forward to hearing? No, each and every time that these questions are posed, we often refer to the sense of sight. What are you looking forward to seeing? So coming to answer the question that's been posed this morning, what about heaven are you most looking forward to? I would dare say that if answers were put in a postcard and sent in, that the majority of the answers, if not all of the answers, would involve something that our eyes shall behold. For some, it might be the golden streets. For others, it might be the gates of pearl, the lavish stones and the foundations of the new Jerusalem. For others, it might be the New Jerusalem itself, its size, its shape, its location. Others might mention the river of the water of life, the very tree of life itself, the throne room of God, the choirs of the angels, or perhaps many of us would also attest to the, or testify to the truth that we are looking forward to seeing those who have gone on before. These things are all brilliant. These are all things worth looking forward to. But can I submit to you this morning that there are not the greatest or the grandest sight to be seen in heaven? Someone is far superior than all the things we have spoken of. Someone will grab our attention in a more unique and comprehensive way than the sum total of all that we have spoken of. An old southern gospel song put it this way, Oh, what glory awaits me in heaven's bright city. When I get there, such sights I'll behold. A million scenes of rare beauty will demand that I view them. Still, Jesus will outshine them all. The sparkling river is flowing and happy faces all glowing. Land of splendor where night never falls. The golden glass gives reflection of that city's perfection. Still, Jesus will outshine them all. Mansions will glisten on the hills of glory, happy reunions on streets of gold, 
angel choir singing glad praises forever. But Jesus will outshine them all. This morning I submit to you that Christ is the greatest sight to behold in heaven. And this morning we want to consider for just a few moments that great sight. Yea, the greatest of sights that one day we shall behold. Here in this chapter of Revelation, we see him depicted as both a lion and a lamb. And so for a few moments, we're going to consider all of that. Let us notice firstly, Christ the lion. As John here adjusts to the heavenly environment he now finds himself in, he has, of course, in chapter 4, recorded for us the mighty chorus of praise that is existent in the very presence of God himself. But now as he comes to chapter 5, his attention is focused upon the theme of that praise, the subject of that praise, indeed the recipient of that praise. Notice in the verse 2 where he says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Here a question is posed. And he beholds as an angel stands and asks concerning a book that finds its place there in the throne room of God, and indeed, who then was going to be worthy to receive and to open that book? In verse 3 and 4, he testifies to this, that no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Here we see that the apostle is troubled in his heart. He comes to the understanding, the realization that none in heaven or on earth was identified as being worthy, or indeed able to open the very book that he beholds. None was able to do anything about his contents. And so his heart is troubled. He's consumed with grief in that moment for he recognizes and identifies that this is a significant thing. But yet through all the searching of heaven, all the searching of earth, no man was found worthy to do the task that was required. But look in verse 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. In this verse, he's reassured by one who possesses a fuller knowledge of all that is being spoken of. Indeed, a greater understanding is exhibited by this elder here of how this need was to be met. And in this message of assurance that he gives to John, we see identified to us one who is noted as being the lion of the tribe of Judah, the very root of David. And as he is brought to our attention, we are also informed that he is both worthy and able to receive and to open the book that has been aforementioned. This is, of course, a mention of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that John in his 
description there of all that he beholds and his understanding of it. He says in the verse 3 that no man had been identified in heaven and on earth. And so as we come into verse 5, we see the one whom God identifies, the very God-man himself. He was one apart from men. Oh yes, the Bible records that he was made in the likeness of men, but he wasn't like men. Do not possess the sin nature that we all possess. He had not transgressed in the way that we have transgressed. He had not the, the finite power that you and I possess or have knowledge of in this world. No, he was one who was pure, spotless, and undefiled. And of his power, of his kingdom, there was no end. He was infinite in his being and his wisdom and his glory. He was the only dear Son of God, the darling of heaven, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one who was God. And here being identified as a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is here fulfilling Scripture itself. This was something prophesied of in Old Testament days. But now as John records it in Revelation in the chapter 5, it's being fulfilled. It's being fully revealed for all men to behold. Come with me to Genesis in the chapter 49. Genesis in the chapter 49, and we see where this promise finds its origin, where this prophecy finds its beginning. We come to the days in which the blessings, as it were, are being meted out. They're being handed out to the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. In the verse 1 of the chapter 49, it tells us that Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Now notice very clearly there that Jacob is gathering together his sons for the intent purpose of revealing to them, expounding to them that which is yet to be. He is, as it were, providing to them a prophecy of days and of times to come. And come down to the verse 8 and it tells us, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stepped down. He couched as a lion. As an old lion, he shall rise up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and until him shall, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. These verses are rich in prophecy. For here we see one foretold of, indeed, who shall be upon the very neck of the enemy. Remember, it tells us that Satan would bruise the Savior's heel, but he would crush his head. It tells us also in the verse 9 that Judah was a lion's whelp, a lion's cub. A reference to his status as one who would then find in his loins, as it were, the very kingly line. The kingly line of Israel would emerge from this one. Authority also was placed with him in the verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. 
So we see the symbol of lordship and power is all being ascribed to those who will one day follow in the line of Judah. It goes on to also remind us in the verse 10 that from him the sent one, the peaceable one, the Messiah, Shiloh, would come. All of this we see partially fulfilled in Christ's first advent, yet to be fully fulfilled in his second. But the idea of this kingship, this line of kingship through which Christ would come and enter into this world being born as a babe in Bethlehem, well, it runs right throughout this record of Scripture. But it also finds further testimony in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. For as Revelation goes on to record that this one Christ is a lion of the tribe of Judah, it also reminds us that he is the root of David. Both of these things are intrinsically connected. And so in Isaiah in chapter 11, it tells us, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Come down to the verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Not only would he find his, his place in the line of Judah, but he would also come through the kingly line of David. And so identified to us is one who, when he came into this world, did come through the line of Judah, did come through the line of David. And in coming that first time, he came on a mission, but coming the second time, he's coming to rule and to reign. Notice very clearly the testimony of heaven was that he had prevailed. He wasn't coming to prevail. He had prevailed already. Tells us there in verse 5 that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So we behold in heaven a scene being described to John with heavenly authority and pointed out to us as one named as a lion of the tribe of Judah, the very root of David, the one who hath, the one who will prevail. And this morning, the Word of God is encouraging us then to behold Christ, our sin-coming King, the one with whom all power and authority rests, the one who will make every enemy his footstool, the one who will tread out the winepress of his wrath upon the ungodly, the one who leads us from victory to victory, the one who is the captain of our salvation, the very lifter of our head. Believer today, the Word of God is encouraging you to behold your king. But not only is he described as being Christ the lion, but we note, of course, that the passage goes on in the verse 6 to describe him as Christ the lamb. The reason that we know that he is our king and the reason that we can be confident this morning and in days, years to come, that he is coming to conquer, 
is all found in this sixth verse. It tells us, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. John looks, and without a shadow of a doubt, in my mind, as he looks, he's fully expecting to see the image, the form of a lion. That's what's been related to him in the verse 5. That's how this elder has built up his expectation. And so as he turns his head to behold the one who stands note in the middle, never miss it, Christ in the middle, in the center. And oh, that he were in the center of all that we do. But nevertheless, as he looks, the contrast could not be more striking for not a lion is beheld, but rather he sees the lamb revealed. Oh yes, the lion has been described in the verse 4 and the verse 5, but as we come to verse 6, it's a revelation of the lamb. Surely it's a striking contrast. Why? Because a lion is fierce, but a lamb is meek and mild. A lamb is one that speaks peace. A lion is one that strikes fear. A lion is a predator. The lamb is always the prey. But despite the completely ridiculous picture that's painted here, the message of, Christ, of, of Scripture is unambiguous. Because Christ was and is the lamb, then he can and will be the lion. Because he was and is the lamb, then he can and will be the lion. It was, the lamb, it was as the lamb that he won his greatest and most comprehensive victory. It was dying as a substitutionary lamb making atonement upon that cross that he conquered sin and death. And as we have just been singing off, the work was finished on that cross. He was the victor then and he remains to be the victor now. And there upon that cross, the devil waged his greatest assault. The devil did his worst. But Christ triumphed over evil. And it was finished upon that cross. And oh yes, there are battles yet to be fought. And oh yes, we know quite clearly that he comes one day riding forth as a lion to the salvation of his people Israel. But make no mistake, the Lamb has already prevailed. Victory is already assured. And the Lamb whose Scripture reveals as being he who was slain from the foundation of the world, slain and his blood spilt, just as it had to be spilt in the days of Moses and the children of Israel when the angel of death passed over, so too that lamb, our sacrificial lamb, was taken and his blood was spilt. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And you and I as sinners have plunged beneath that flood. We've lost all our guilty stains. We know the power of the shed blood. We know its power as it's been applied to the doorposts of our hearts. 
And so this morning we gather as a people who have nothing to fear in this life, nothing to fear in the life to come because the Lamb has prevailed. And he stands just as John describes. He stands victorious over all, wearing the royal diadem upon his kingly brow. Believer today, behold your lamb. Christ the lion. Christ the lamb. But notice in the rest of the chapter, Christ the all and all. What follows is a scene depicting true worship. From the hearts of the redeemed arises a chorus Thou art worthy. Worthy to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. This is a song, remember, from those who have beheld the physical beauties of heaven. This is a song from those who have been reunited with loved ones who have gone on before. This is a song from those who have beheld all that God has prepared for those who know and love Him, and yet their song is, Christ is worthy. This morning we come together as a people who know from Scripture that heaven is our inheritance. An inheritance that Peter reminds us, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and one that faileth not away. The word incorruptible there is that which completely undermines and makes full of the doctrine of entropy that you and I know well of in this world. That doctrine of entropy tells us that everything about us and everything we possess, it all decays. What was once nice and new soon takes on a very old and unappealing image. Even our bodies that some of us put a lot of time into looking after and doing the very best that we can for them. Even they grow old. Even they fade. The story is told of a little bar. If you've ever been to America, you may have came across a little cake bar by the name of Twinkie. There's a myth that attaches a Twinkie. And that myth is that it's not made of any food ingredients. It's completely made of chemicals. And because it's made of chemicals, well, it could last right through a nuclear age. A hundred years has been the figure attributed to it in this myth. Bury a Twinkie in your garden and get your great-grandchildren to resurrect it in a hundred years and they will enjoy it just the way that you would have if you had ate it when you bought it. The maker said it is a myth because they do use food ingredients. The maker said it is a myth because a Twinkie has only 30 days of a shelf life. 
But nevertheless, they do subscribe to the idea that theirs is the one cake product in the whole world that decays the very slowest. But the truth of the matter is, it still decays. Not our treasure. The Bible tells us that our treasure is in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. It's undefiled, nothing in this earth, and no one in this earth is perfect. Everything and everyone is flawed in some way, but not Christ. Not that which we have in Christ. For he is the perfect one. Peter says it's uncorruptible, it's undefiled, it fadeth not away. And that reminds us that Christ is our enduring possession. Oh, things in this earth fade and lose their luster. But remember, Christ outshines them all. And he is the light, the unending light of the city that needs no light. So this morning... Scripture encourages us to behold your all in all. As we view Christ, as we lift our minds, our hearts, and indeed our eyes to behold Him, not a sight on earth compares, not a sight in heaven compares. He is a king. Who conquers? He is a lamb who has prevailed. He is our all in all. Believer, this morning as we end this series in heaven, ending it in a way that I trust and desire that you might want to know more and to experience more of all that lies before us. Just remember that we are given this assurance. One day, faith will give way to sight. And just like Isaiah, we will say, I have saw the Lord high and lifted up. This morning, behold the lion. Behold the lamb. Behold your all in all. Behold Christ. May God bless his word to your hearts today. We end with a song. Its words may be unfamiliar to us, but nevertheless, its tune will be more than familiar. And it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. All glory be to Christ. Let's stand to our feet to sing, please.
thankful indeed for the one whom our eyes shall behold one day in that city above. We thank Thee that even the greatest sight that we can imagine here on this earth compares in no way to that which we shall behold. We shall behold Him in all His beauty. We shall behold Him in all His glory. And we shall join with the chorus above ascribing honor and greatness to the one who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever. Help us, O Lord, to truly be encouraged in our own hearts as we journey here below and help us to keep our eyes fixed upon the goal, looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Until that day, give us grace to live. And if thou dost call, give us grace to die also. But Lord, help us to prevail and overcome as thou hast already done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.